This podcast was recorded during the 2023 Writers Guild of America strike and edited during the Writers Guild of America and SAG-AFTRA strike. Without the labor of the writers and actors currently on strike, this movie I'm reviewing would not exist. The screenwriters of Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse are Phil Lord, Christopher Miller, and Dave Callahan. Not credited here, but the creator of Spider-Man is Steve Ditko. You can support the striking writers and actors by doing what their unions have asked us to do, and that is donate to the strike funds, show up on their picket lines, and share their statements and messages of support online from the union. And don't be a dick. Don't complain about the strike. The striking workers are making great sacrifices to protect the art we love and feed their families. And I mentioned that you can show up on a picket line. Folks might not know, but those aren't just in New York and LA. They're also in Atlanta and other places. The info about that is on the union's website, and I will include that in the links. But remember to always get your information about the strikes directly from the unions themselves. That's the Writers Guild of America and the Screen Actors Guild hyphen American Federation of Television and Radio Arts. Talk to the unions Support the strike funds. Graphic policy is with you in solidarity. Hello, this is Graphic Policy Radio, and this is your host, Ilana Levin. This is a podcast for fans who agree with the poster in Gwen Stacy's bedroom, we should protect trans kids, and also that we should protect trans adults, and also that we should protect Gwen Stacy. I have two amazing guests, returning guests, who will be joining me to talk about Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, the new animated Miles Morales and Spider-Gwen-focused Spider-Man animated movie from Sony, following up on the very beloved 2018 film. This movie has been in the theaters for a while now, and... I know I often begin my podcasts with a spoiler-free sort of endorsement of a movie or explanation of why I think it's good before we dive into the spoiler-filled part of it, but it's been a while, and I'm just going to keep it short. It's a really good movie. You should see it. And from here on out, just assume any spoilers are happening. Joining me is returning guest Zoe Tunnell. Zoe is a trans lesbian writer and co-creator of Blade Maidens, a queer fantasy adventure comic, which I've been following and loving online, which is for free online, but is being published in print with Dark Horse. That was just announced today, Dark Horse Today. Congratulations on that amazing news, Zoe. Thank you. Yeah, it's been a wild day. Yeah, I'm glad I got you today for that. I, you know, Zoe was on my podcast with her co-creator of the Blade Maiden series, Valentine Smith, a while back to talk about it. I actually called the series the strongest comics debut I've like ever seen, which is still true. So I really hope folks will give a listen to that episode and, and check it out. Zoe, do you have any sense roughly of when this book might be something that people can put in their hot little hands? We don't really want to give any sort of vague timeline because it's kind of a it's done when it's done deal because we are still in ongoing webcomic where we're doing one page a week. And the mm. goal is for this to contain our first six stories plus a little selection of the shorts we do in between chapters and Valentine is drawing them as we speak. And, you know, we're... 
we're working away at it. But like I said, we we don't want to say, oh, it'll be, you know, late 2024 or something because right, we right. we we don't have a date yet and boy would i hate to say a date and then have dark horse be like no what do you say <laughs> no i get it i get it well folks can definitely stay abreast of your favorite disaster werewolf bisexual bards and mm-hmm. very large gender non-conforming badass warriors named <laughs> sir and all their friends visiting the Blade Maiden's website, which is a very well-designed website. So go read the comic there in the meantime. And also joining me is another fabulous returning guest, Felicia T. Perez, born and raised in Southern California. Felicia is a juicy storyteller at heart, grounding in using stories to create narratives of belonging and justice. Felicia is an artist, educator, author, public speaker, creative online content editor, and an audio storytelling producer. She most recently served as the head of memes at Task Force, and today can be found enjoying a good movie, a good paddle out on Lake Tahoe, or just enjoying life with recent good news about finally being done with chemotherapy after a decade of infusions. Welcome back to the show, Felicia. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here in all the ways that that can be taken. Yeah, <laughs> it is really amazing news. I'm so happy to hear that. Yeah, and I, I, when this movie came out, it did kind of sneak up on me. I was like, oh shit, that's out now. Ah, and then I thought, I hope Felicia has time to see this because I need her to come on the podcast to talk about it with me. And then I saw Zoe had a, a really amazing thread on Twitter, which then got picked up by CNN.com because it was that incisive. And I figured Zoe needs to be the other guest. That goes without saying. I mean, I thought that before CNN picked up Zoe's Twitter thread for the record, you know, but it was, it was a nice validator that. uh, Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. Like when CNN quotes your thread about Gwen Stacy and trans metaphors, do they, do they tell you first or you just sort of are like, well, what happened, the the one that made me go like, oh, come on, was first Kotaku used it. And if you're not familiar with Kotaku, it's a video game site that has a very long history of being a focal point for harassment campaigns. Like, like people will jump off of Kotaku and like, you know, dogpile. The, the website itself is not hateful. They are just the target, like people pull from there. And they used my tweet without asking or warning me beforehand. And it got real rowdy in my Twitter. And so I was like, hey, please don't do that. And then a reporter from CNN DM me. I was like, hey, can I ask you a few questions about this for a piece? And so I answered about half a dozen questions. And they used those in the in the piece, which was pretty nice. I never thought I would be able to say, yeah, I was interviewed by CNN. So About Spider-Woman. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Trans metaphors. Who saw that coming? Not me. Well, you know, I'm not going to ask you to restate the exact tweets in question, but if you wouldn't mind laying out a little bit for our listeners, let's just start right with it. Like, talk to us about the Gwen Stacy trans metaphor situation. Well, the, the, the big scene there, I I think there's a few different things with Gwen, but the big scene that kind of everyone latched onto, myself included, is later on in the film. She is sent back to her home dimension, which she has been actively avoiding because her dad knows that she's Spider-Woman now and was going to arrest her. And she's basically terrified that her dad knows her secret and won't love her. 
she goes in. Her dad, who is a police captain, is there. And she delivers a very heartfelt monologue about how hard it's been to, like, live half of her life with the people she loves. Like, she has to hide from them, because hide from him, because he won't accept her for who she really is. And in Spider-Gwen's world, there the color palette, Haley Steinfeld talked about it in an interview, where, like, the pitch she was given is that it's like a mood ring for Gwen's moods. So, like, whatever the palette is, it reflects her inner state, like, her thoughts, her emotions. And while she's having this speech to her dad, the room around her switches to the trans pride palette in very aggressive ways <laughs> to the point where her hair is basically a trans pride flag. And given that it's a talk about hiding your parts of yourself from the people you love and how scary it is to be honest with them and how there's the very real possibility that they won't accept you, it it definitely felt a little pointed. Mm-hmm. And then yeah, and then it's like reinforced by she she has a protect trans kids flag, like you said, in her room. And then there's a shot of her dad's like badge on his that he has pinned on his coat that above the police badge has a little trans flag, like either taped or like attached to it, which I I don't know about anyone else, but I can't think of a cop that is so pro-trans <laughs> without having a direct trans family member that they'd have it on their badge. I And wasn't that not even visible until that scene where she goes to talk with him? Yep. Yeah, it was only seen because like there's earlier shots where it's just his badge. And then yeah. in that scene when his yeah. coat is hanging on the on the chair, you can see it. You know, another moment, I I went into the movie having seen some of this dialogue online, but one of the moments that also hit me for real was when he accuses her er earlier on in the movie of Mm -hmm. killing a boy who was like a son to him and just thinking Mm -hmm. about like accusing your trans daughter of killing your son as in this child that you thought was your masculine child or whatever was like, ah. Because like textually, yes, he means Peter Parker, but... mm, it's also, okay. you can dig into saying you killed you, you killed this boy who was like a son to me, and that boy happens to be Peter Parker, where in this world, Gwen is the one who was bitten by the spider. So it's also, you, I mean, yeah. like, it, it's a bit of a, like, you know, reach, but, like, you could also bring in the idea that, like, well, is it, like, a woman, a trans woman, potentially, is Spider-Woman in this world instead of straight cis white guy Peter Parker, so I, I think there's all sorts of little threads you can pull on and some are very clear and some are like, I won't say like, no, you're wrong, but I think it's some require a little, mm. ro- little more pulling, but that scene with the pride palette flag, it's like, it's like, I, I don't know how anyone could miss that one. Honestly. You had an interesting point too, though, about like the significance of this being still relegated to subtext and deniability mm-hmm. in some ways. Yeah, it's, I think it's a situation where when it comes to big corporate media, and it's hard to get bigger and more corporate than like a major motion picture, seeing direct trans representation and affirmation is still very rare. And that's not for lack of trying on the creative side of things. I personally know so many people who are working on, you know, corporate media projects that would love to have it be gayer and more trans and more queer, but obviously hands are tied. 
So I, as bummed as it is, as much of a bummer as it is to have it be through subtext or symbolism, I think people need to have kind of the context where this is what we should, like the fact that this is a big blockbuster, like it's the third, it had the third highest grossing opening of the entire Spider-Man franchise. Like it's a huge movie has a protect trans kids flag has that patch has that moment where even if it doesn't have Gwen Stacy looked at the camera and go, hello, I am a transgender. <laughs> she like, it, it's still very clear in its message. Like, Hey, we see you. We, we see your struggle. We are here and we are supporting you. Even if that's all they could get away with. I, I think that's something that's still worth celebrating and like making note of. And if it's a story that connects to people so consistently mm-hmm. from that perspective, then that that is powerful. And like maybe like it doesn't do the full job of also fully radicalizing all viewers into being allies, but like even yeah. just having a story tool that like we would recognize as being like, oh my God, that feels like me is still helpful. But I'm curious, Felicia, had you heard about any of that kind of conversation going in to see the movie? Were you aware of that? So before we, you know, got into the podcast and we were just sort of, you know, chatting about the three of us, I mentioned how much I've been traveling. And so I have not seen any films or movies in the theater for a very long time. And so today is when I saw the film earlier mm-hmm. this morning. It was actually the the first film that you could possibly see at the movie theater. I read nothing going into it. I looked for nothing moving into it, uh, except mm-hmm. for to see how much of the development from the first in the series, in terms of the film series came out, how much more would be developed about either migration subtext, more Spanglish or Spanish speaking, or how much more representation would come from the series at all. I did not see any of these things, but I did track one point, which was the moment in which Miles says, I like your hair. It's more pink and it's like longer. And that was the only moment in which I really looked at Gwen and looked at Mm. all these other things that were going on. And it was at that moment that I realized that Gwen's hair was much longer than it had been before and that there had been a change in the color and the length and so much more in terms of like the arc of the development of Gwen that she had changed, that they had gone through some sort of, you know, metamorphosis of sorts while they had Mm. been away from home. And that was the only thing that I clocked or tracked. Was it because Miles said it and I'm super focused on Miles? I don't know. But there was definitely something where I was like, hmm, that haircut looks like a lot of my friends. In fact, my wife has that haircut mm-hmm. right now. Um, I, and I, and I, also have th- I have that haircut right now. <laughs> right, right. So, yeah. so I, think, I think for me, like my standout, you know, like thing that hit me was not Gwen, but the unnamed character that is the spider, the spider person, because I didn't ever really figure out what their gender presentation was. I think it was more on the femme side, but the spider man person who is in a wheelchair and who is a crip and who is disabled, right? Like, so there were all these other things that I was tracking and clocking and that just Mm -hmm. wasn't one, but it doesn't mean that it wasn't there and Mm -hmm. that who are looking or needing or finding it, right? Like I used to teach a class, and I'm going to be teaching it again next year, next academic year at the University of Reno, Nevada about, you know, representations of marginalized community members in pop culture. And 
you know, one of the things that happens all the time is that pop culture provides either a window or a mirror for those who need either one or both. And I think that I wasn't, I didn't need to see that window. I wasn't looking for that mirror. I think when you have, when, when you identify at the intersection of a lot of marginalized communities, you're picking mm-hmm. and choosing which one you feel is currently not being represented mm-hmm. in your life at that moment. And mm-hmm. there's a lot right now between watching Flaming Hot and other sort of, you know, like stories and narratives that are out there in the world right now. Maybe if Gwen was Latinx or Brown, I maybe would have clocked it a little bit sooner, but I've already sort of dismissed Mm. Gwen and and white women, if you will, in several (laughs) different spaces for a lot of other reasons. So my apologies that I didn't that I didn't track it. But there were other things. No, I was fascinated. I was dying to know. Yeah, it's okay. I, I feel extremely rude that I was like, Oh, I don't know how you could miss that. So my apologies. No, no. That that the the spider woman who's in a, a wheelchair is Sun Spider. She's an existing character from the comics, actually. And she was invented by a Were they using a wheelchair originally? Yes. She is very intentionally made by a disabled creator of the team. Yeah. The cr- original creator of Sun Spider is Dane Broder. Yes. Um thank you. Of course. Yeah. So she began as fan art made by a disabled creator. And then Marvel was doing a whole launch of different spider characters. And they approached like the fan artist and were like, can we use this? I'm very curious what kind of rights or legal, etc., mm-hmm. have come from this. One of the writers who worked on the character's first appearance in the comics and like her origin story is disabled comics writer, T. Franklin, who was really badass. And so, yeah, she, she showed up in a couple stories and she uses her crutches to shoot webs in the comics. So she's like using her crutches to swing from building to building. It's an amazing mechanic. So she um, goes from using crutches and using a wheelchair and then mm-hmm. goes between the two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot yes. of fan artists throughout the yeah. movie, right? Like all any of the Lego scenes, yeah. when they go through multiple yeah. universes of animation and we get to the Lego scenes, that also is from a, a teen, a young mm-hmm. fan artist. Mm-hmm. So there's there's a lot that of blew this, my mind. Like, yes, there's so much interesting like fandom creation integration into the film that if you know it, again, it's one of those things. If you're looking for it and you know it, great. And if you're not, then you're like, oh, that's just that's just so f- wonderful that there is all these different things going on. <laughs> but once you find out really so what's even behind it, then you're like, oh, my God, let me go watch it again. And I wonder if that's actually really the point. Let me go watch it again. In mm. fact, let me go see it three to four times. <laughs> yeah. And I do remember actually with Sun Spider, Chris Anka, who is one of the lead character designers for this film and one of my... Previously did comics. He doesn't do them that much anymore. He's one of my favorite artists in the business. I adore his work. But he did Sun Spider, and he's been going through his character designs. And he did mention that in this, that he made the decision to have her wheelchair also be able to morph into a mech that can like follow her whenever she switches to using the crutches to like web swing around, mm. which I think is a pretty clever idea. 
That is freaking cool. Yeah, Chris Christopher Anka's character design work has been great. I love all the tweets he's posted of the different characters that he worked on. One of them that I didn't really notice in the movie because again, blink and you'll you'll miss it, mm-hmm. but that I know you guys will be excited about is his take on the existing character Anya Corazon, who is a Puerto Rican American superheroine, often called Spider Girl or Aranya in the comics. She's usually in the comics like a tiny, small, mm-hmm. thin teenage girl looking character and in the animated movie she is a very large buff like plus size and strong woman and of course we do not have nearly enough characters with that kind of body type in Mm -hmm. pop culture animation or anything else and it was such a cool thing to see her translated that way because like we want that kind of diversity of interesting looks and styles and like we don't have any superheroes who look like her so i really hope we get to see that version of anya in, in other stuff going forward. Yeah, it, I, and me, she showed up in like a trailer first and me and my little like comic lesbian friend group immediately went, oh, what? No, what? And then in the movie <laughs> and then since the art came out, you don't see that happen, especially with like an existing character. You, you very rarely see mm. a character who is traditionally very skinny, very like, skin tight bodysuit like superhero outfit have a take in it especially in a movie where it's like hey she's a big buff like heavy set butch now and i true cannot say how great that is like it rules yeah yeah every and i love the public reaction from folks who i know have seen it or everybody's like she's hot we're like i know it's great so that was that was fun are there any other spiders we want to shout out before we talk about miles because we definitely will do that very shortly <laughs> i mean if um, do, do you mean like minor ones or main ones because i could talk sure, about Hobie brown ones. for like oh Hobie, we'll talk about a lot a lot yes no minor ones like i really yeah. enjoyed andy samberg's ben riley who mm-hmm. from the comics is like the mopey 90s gritty spider-man clone and i like that they they used the very Todd McFarlane cartoon style to depict him as they should, because that's the kind of way he looked in the comics. Any other minor shout outs from, for characters? I mean, spider, spider woman on a motorcycle pregnant with natural hair Mm -hmm. is just like absolutely (laughs) amazing, dude. That was the first moment I think that my jaw dropped open, you know, behind my face mask in the middle of the movie theater where I was just like, (laughs) are you kidding me? Like, and that comes out very early on, right? It's like the film hasn't even officially begun when that's already there. And I was like, okay. I, let me get relaxed now because this is going to get real, real cool, real, real fast. So I feel like it, that sort of like sets you up, you know, with that being one of the first like other spider folks that you get to meet in the film so early on as this is going to be about all different kinds of bodies that are holding mm. this person's life and character in them. Right. And so it was, it was fascinating to see all the different ways in which things play out. And when you go down the rabbit hole of learning all the characters that play all the actors rather that play these characters, there is a part of me that's like, can we get an, a, another version of this film too, where all the like actors are actually playing these people as well? Because that's the thing that always strikes me about this particular version of mm. Spider-Man, that it is way more amazing, transformative, radical, and just beautiful, but it's also animation. 
And why couldn't we have gotten that in the quote, you know, live action version of it, which I right, just feel falls right. flat because it's like, let's just bring out all the different white men that we can and have them look <laughs> at each other and realize they're all the same white man. Right. And this is so, so incredibly weird. diverse and different yeah. and just like yeah. blows things out of the water. And there's a part of me that's like, of course, it would have to be an animation because that's really where your heart and soul right. and your dreams are. But mm-hmm. why? Because then it feels like that could never be possible. It feels more impossible in that way than any other way. Although we are talking about superheroes. And so impossibility just kind of feels like it's already there. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't want there to be like a direct, like, you know how like Disney goes around making like, and now it'll be the live action version of the Jungle Book. Like, I don't want like a live action version of this exact thing because I feel like that undermines what this is doing mm-hmm. visually piece of art but i would love to see the actors who are playing the diverse characters in this in a different you know in a different marvel spider-man thing that isn't like a retelling of this same exact do you know what i mean yeah. like i wouldn't uh, you know what i mean like not the same exact story or something like yeah that. I, yeah I, I think- Ray, spider-woman yes I love yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, I, I think all the casting is like dead on. And with Shamik Moore, you let him play like a older, like mid 20s Miles Morales. He's perfect. You get like Oscar Isaac could be Miguel O'Hara tomorrow. But it, it's just, I, I both would love to see them play in live action. But I also think like, it's weird because like, like they do, they do kind of like the inverse of that where they have that moment where Donald Glover shows up mm-hmm. <laughs> because mm-hmm. he, he, uh, I'm how I understood it is he's meant to be MCU prowler because he had that, he had a short cameo in the first Tom Holland Spider-Man movie mm-hmm. where he was playing prowler. And it's like, it's cute and fun, but I, I like, like they should do both, but also like, like you said, I don't want it to be one-to-one. I don't want this Miles Morales to show up in live action if Shamik Moore played Miles Morales. I want it to be a different take on it because this is so good and unique and beautiful that I feel like bringing these characters into different, like, into the like the MCU or live action, it's just like, I think you'll lose a little bit of the magic there, but the casting is so good, you should absolutely right? reuse it in live action. That's yeah. what I'm talking about. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I would even, even, I would just love yeah. to even just have them be in a reading room, right? Where they're just yeah. like reading their lines. Mm-hmm. I don't even need to see them do anything else other than to see them in real life because there's just something mm-hmm. so rich <laughs> about who everybody is also in terms yep. of, in terms of the actors and, and who they are as, as people outside since now more and more, we know more about an actor's real life than their actual, you know, like bios of, of credits. But I think what's super interesting to too in that whole space is that you know i was bored out of my fucking mind when i watched the you know live action spider-man you know multiverse one because i Mm -hmm. personally i think like 30 minutes of bow bow pew pew you know like shooting it up like could have been gone like it didn't it wasn't yeah. creative. It wasn't artistic. I was just, I was having a hard time following the big screen, like where everybody was. But this version of the fight 
it has it, it. I don't know. I don't know if it's the Matrix effect, you know, like where you can mm. like crouching tiger, hidden dragon, like stop things and make things move slowly that don't quite happen all the time in live action where you just have that moment to pause and have your brain catch up with what is actually happening. I mean, but there wasn't mm. a single moment in this film where I was like, you could have cut that. I'm a little bored now. There was only <laughs> like, wait, come back. No, come back. Go deeper yeah, on that yeah. character. Tell me more about that one. I don't get more. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. But I don't I don't feel that way in the live yeah. action ones at all. Well, you know, the thing is the live action Disney movies, by and in large, you know, the Black Panther films I think are outsta- outstanding from this, but like don't actually care about aesthetics in any significant way. And 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 this animation series really does. Like yeah. this is a landmark piece of animation that will go down in animation history for having rethought how animation works. There's Mm. been some good stories that have come out explaining it. Like, you know, historically speaking, according to the old Disney laws of animation, what I believe it's like characters are supposed to move on the two and the four beat. Mm -hmm. But in this one, they also have the backdrops moving on the one and the three. So the characters and the backdrops are both moving and then they were saying when Hobie Spider Punk shows up, he's actually moving on the one and the five, which is like literally never happened yeah. before. And oh, he's, animated he's, stuff. He's, so like, amazing. he's he's not. It's not just him. Like different parts of him are moving at different speeds. Like his yeah. his guitar on his back is at a different. It, I think it's like threes and two, like twos and threes. His like the aura around him is at a different speed. His movement. They they do so much insane precision to detail, like bonkers, like it, it's so incredible. And, but the and it's not just oh, one no, aesthetic; no. it's like multiple yeah. aesthetics. And I think like it and it, simultaneously. I love animation. Yeah. Yes, yes, and that's one of the reasons I love animation. I mean, traditional films also could make the choice to give a fuck about art direction again, but. With this particular kind of animation, like that really is central of what the visual storytelling it can do. And I just hope that this movie gets more animated films, the American, I should say, animated films, the leeway they need to not look so fucking boring and Pixar bland all the time. I don't like animation, it's traditionally speaking. But this, this, I like. There are, like, and there's definitely, like, there's a response to the first film all that has kind of formed. Because, like, you have in August, there's a new Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie coming out. I mean, I'm, Mm. I'm not a big Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles gal, but, like, you know, it... I that I'm going to go see that one because it it looks so, like something different. Like mm-hmm. they can mm-hmm. like like the the visual aesthetic is very clearly like not trying to do Spider Verse, but it's like inspired by Spider Verse. It's doing something different. They all look kind of scratchy mm-hmm. and hand drawn, and they all have like they're. It's the first time they're going like hmm. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Teenagers can be 13 years old and total idiots. Why don't we try that? That's fun. And casting like a bunch of like young black actors as the turtles. And it's like I'm seeing the influence it is having. And I I'm very excited to see the influence that this one is going to have because now it's like, oh, this one made back the budget, like made the first movie's box office in a week. Like this one is a much huger success. And now like I feel like more places are going to notice and be like well i guess people are into actually kind of pushing the boundaries and doing something yeah it's an amazing challenge to have them throw down and like finally see that Mm -hmm. taken up 
And you've just made me interested in watching the Ninja Turtles cartoon. But like, yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> yeah. I love animation. <laughs> and I see very few animated movies because I hate that Pixar style mm -hmm. that just gets used. You know, I like 2D, whatever. Podcast listeners are sick of me talking about how much I love 2D <laughs> animation. For the record, by the way, we are going to be covering the finale of Venture Brothers when that comes out in July. But anyway, uh. but yeah, like, so this is, this gives me some faith that yes, three-dimensional animation, computer animation can be beautiful and can be innovative and interesting and fresh. So I want to talk a bit about specifically the, this is a bit of a jump, but Miles's narrative in the story. So much of this film is about, and we don't really, it, I kind of think like it's sort of like a stealth theme that kind of creeps in is like, people reacting again to like, where does Miles belong and where does he not belong? Like you have that, mm -hmm. you have that guidance counselor conversation with his parents where she's trying to like make up this generic, like, Oh, poor black or Brown kid from the city story about Miles that isn't even match the reality. Like, let's be real. Miles dad is a New York city police officer. Who's about to be a sergeant, sorry, about to be a captain. He makes over 150 K a year. He's not a poor kid, but like trying to, without actually knowing anything specific about who he is and like as a person and trying to shove him in being like, well, if we tell this kind of story about him, he'll get into the X, Y, Z colleges, whatever. And then later you have everything where we, when we realize that the spider, the Spider-Verse team run by Miguel O'Hara is like actually there to police the multiverse, including policing what kind of Spider-Man stories get to be told. Like there's a sudden click of like, oh shit, like this is about the fandom and like who, who do fans think mm -hmm. gets to be an acceptable Spider-Man? Who will fans accept? And like just having Miguel O'Hara say to him, like you weren't supposed to be Spider-Man. It was supposed, you know, I, that was actually the moment for me when I, when I realized that I might have been slow here, that the spot was Peter Parker, right? Like the spot supervillain is the entitled white kid who expected mm -hmm. to be Spider-Man and represents the fans who are angry that they don't have a, yet another white Spider-Man in the story. But like to have a movie that literally positions retrograde fans who only want white heroes as the supervillain and the enforcement of canon as a form of policing, like, that's that's kind of amazing. The the bit that got me is there. There's a mo so like I you know I've been reading comics since I was like you know a teenager. So like I I was there like on like you know I I was witness to like the absolute chaos of when Miles was first revealed in like 2011 and. Mm -hmm. the absurd fan backlash and there's a moment where miles is running through i think it's it's very near the end of the movie it's where he's running through i think earth 42 and he's just getting flashes of like what's happened to him and miguel says the audio if it weren't for you peter parker wouldn't have died you weren't meant to mm -hmm. be spider-man and in into the Spider-Verse, Peter arguably dies saving Miles. Like, I don't really think so. He dies because, like, it was a rough fight. Miles was just there. Oh. But in the Ultimate Comics, Peter Parker died, and then Miles came in. 
And people were very resentful of that because people really liked Ultimate Peter Parker and he had a run that lasted like 150 issues. And I remember hearing that, like, why did Peter Parker have to die for this new kid? Like, you know, why did we have to lose our, like, you know, precious white boy Spider-Man, even though there's a billion versions of him? And hearing Miguel say that made me go like, oh, they are just explicit. They're they're making it very clear, like, who this is for. I think what's interesting is when we say people got upset, people were up in arms. That's very fucking general. It wasn't people. It was, it was very specific yeah. people. <laughs> yes. Decided yes, to take up that space and be overly vocal, which is happening in every single particular pop culture or nonfiction space mm-hmm. across the globe right now. And I don't know that it ever really has stopped. So it's not like it's a new thing. Mm-hmm. It's just way, way more in our, quote, face, because we're really actually looking at it and thinking about it now. Like, what does that actually mean? Who are they actually referring to? And so I feel like what's super interesting to me is on the other end of that is you have Miles's mom giving this very long moment where she is trying to explain to Miles why she has any hesitancy towards seeing him get older and become more independent. And she gives this basically like I, I, I akin it to or I liken it to what happens when you are from a migrant family and what you are told as you get older in terms of not forgetting where you come from is a constant thing over and over and over again. But she adds this other piece to it, which is don't get lost right? Don't get lost and know that you can always come home. Mm. But the idea of being lost is super interesting to me. Like, what does that mean? How does one actually get lost? Do people actually get lost? Or do people push them and shove them away? And they're lost only to that person who did the pushing and the shoving. And so I feel like there's so many other things that are going on in this film that are also about don't get lost thinking, too, that you have to be like that version of Peter Parker, that don't get lost thinking that you have to be like this dominant population, that you have to be the straight white rich guy in order to be, you know, who authentically you need to be in order to be feeling empowered. And so th- I feel like there's there's so many things coming at so many different angles and, you know, POVs from all the different kinds of characters where It is, yes, a call in and a call out about, you know, like, you're not supposed to be here. But also his mom saying, don't let anybody tell you that you're not supposed to be here. Mm -hmm. And don't get lost. Because if you get lost, then maybe even your own community will tell you that you're not supposed to be here anymore. And the very beginning of the film starts with Gwen giving this long monologue about, but you know, that wasn't the only one and I'm not the only one and they weren't the only one, right? And so there's this whole thing that's like leading you and foreshadowing that there's going to be many singular people who feel alone, but together are at least feeling alone together. It's this really interesting thing that starts to happen and gets, you know, like teased out. But it starts from the very beginning where she's talking about these people who feel alone and that she's one of them and at the end, I don't know that we get that resolved, right? Because there's that whole, like, I'm, I'm in a band, but I don't fit in the band. And at the end, like, I made my own band, but it's still a band. And so I'm, I'm trying to figure out, like, where we're actually going with the rest of it. Like, what is, according to this film, the solution? Is it if you don't fit in here, make your own? Because I just I, want to throw this out here that Oscar Isaac, that's not their name. 
just so that we're clear, Oscar Isaac is their first and middle name. Oscar Isaac, the actor's name is Oscar Isaac Hernandez Estrada. Okay, but Hernandez Estrada mm-hmm. gets left out. So don't get lost, Oscar. That's all I want to say. Oh, yeah, I was going to say as far as like the end, like how I took like the Gwen, like, like, you know, I made my own band or I found a new one. I think it's the feeling like how, like, you know, I wasn't the only one. They weren't the only one. We weren't, etc. Like with the Spider Society, I think it's realizing that at least for her, and the group that come together, like the like little rebel squad, it's it's less about like, you know, oh, we are all bonding over feeling alone. Like we we are alone in our world. So we are finding like together, like we are finding like, you know, community together and more like we the idea that we have to feel alone in our own worlds to find that togetherness elsewhere is not like it doesn't apply and it's a like it's a trick to get you to be like oh this is the only place that i can be accepted as myself meaning like no you can you should be able to carve out a place for yourself wherever you are and there should be people that will accept you so like gwen by the end of the movie she's found a place in her home with her dad like her dad has accepted her everyone else on that crew except penny who something penny got evangelion at some point because she's sad <laughs> now but the rest of them like they're all happy and like have like are at peace or like feel whole in their world like hobie likes his mm. punk rock world puppeteer loves mumbatten and miles helped make that like, you know, he make him still love his world because, like, you know, he avoided yes. the canon events. So I think, like, the band at the end is, like, we the idea that we have to suffer or, like, feel that pain or that isolation to find community elsewhere is a lie. And we are finding community both at home and also outside of it and, like, finding community in multiple definitions and, like, in multiple ways. That's at least that, that. Like, that's, that. that's the vibe I yeah. got from what they were going for. Well, I also appreciate how from the moment he arrives, Hobie Brown, Spider-Punk, who comes from the comics, but I was completely unaware of his existence until the movie, even though he does come from the comics, is basically warning everybody, like, warning, warning Gwen and Miles, I know you think joining this society club is, like, the coolest thing ever, but, like, you should not trust this structure and you know he positions himself as being an anarchist politically obviously his whole visual style is referencing a specific uk era of punk but like he's at odds with the system around him and he's like stealing and bringing together little pieces of it and his refusal to be locked down into the spider order he uses that to help break the other people out you know like Mm -hmm. he's he get he gives the the, the 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 device to Gwen Stacy's dad and Zoe was was just and I were just chatting about this before like Hobie apparently showed up at Spider Gwen dad's house and like gave him a talking to about like stop being a transphobe and accept your child and it worked like he's you know someone who is helping the younger people like he's an older radical he's not older but he's older than them you know. 
he's a young adult, like radical activist, black anarchist, who is helping the younger generation understand that they need to be skeptical of authority and helping arm them with the tools that they need to do that and to stand up for themselves. My one of my favorite we, things with yeah. Hobie uh, one of my favorite things with Hobie is the kind of trick the movie plays on you where he shows up and like he is so like he just it, like his aesthetic punches you in the face like it's so like in like outlandish and loud and like he's constantly like stealing stuff and like cracking jokes and like saying stuff that like doesn't make sense to miles or whatever and like the vibe you get is like oh he's like he's like almost a comedic character but then you gradually learn like oh no everything he's doing is very intentional like when he's stealing stuff he's stealing Mm -hmm. it to make the bracelets for gwen when he's telling miles all these things that miles doesn't get he's telling him like you know hey you need to like you know this you think you're fighting the right fight you need to know what you're fighting for and then that really comes to a head like in the moment where miles is trapped and Kobe just kind of puts his hands up and like reminds Miles, hey, if you really want to use your powers, use the whole hand, not just the fingers, which lets Miles escape and like get loose. Mm-hmm. And just the the slow like realization that, oh no, this dude is this dude knows what's going on more than anyone else in this movie. Like he is the most competent man in the room. And he hates the prime minister, and he is correct. I'm you know? so angry that joke <laughs> took me a while to get. I th- I was just like, like it's it's the same thing. Like I was like, AM PM. Oh, it's a joke. Like you know, he's always grumpy. Like whatever. And then my partner, who is Scottish, was just like, no, 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 it's PM, like prime minister. And I was like, oh god damn it. But I was great because, like, you know, you get this, like, you know, you can have this one black character mentoring this younger black character, and like have it be from someone outside of his family. And like, one of the things that I find a little bit potentially concerning is that in this movie where we see the alternate world in which Miles's dad dies and Miles doesn't become Spider-Man, Miles becomes a a criminal gang gang lord with his uncle, is like, are they implying that like Miles needs a cop in his family to keep him from being criminal? Like that's... I mean, look, I'm not, who knows? Anything could happen in the next movie. That may not be what they're saying at all, but it kind of sort of was like, because I mean, the whole thing is like, for a movie that is critical of how fans police narratives, like, it doesn't really question policing. Although I will say, having Gwen's dad stop being a cop because she's trans is pretty fucking amazing. The but yeah, okay. saw, yeah. The, the, the tweet I saw that was like Hobie Brown talks to this man one time and he quits being a cop and accepts his trans daughter. And I'm like, oh, okay, that's <laughs> the power of Hobie Brown. Yeah, yeah. But like, you know, so like I, I I like to see that, you know, like Miles can have another mentor who's a black character who like isn't his dad or his like sympathetic but criminal uncle, you know, in his life. I also think like questioning whether or not having a family member die is necessary for, for a spider person to understand, you know, the, 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 the key lesson of Spider-Man is, 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 you know, Stan Lee did not invent Spider-Man or mm-hmm. pretty much anything that he tells you he invented, but he did write something brilliant when he said, 
with great power also must come great responsibility, which is a paraphrase of a philosophical statement from before, but nevertheless, he brought it into the superhero comic. It made it Spider-Man's sort of theme there, which is really quite powerful. Like, do you know, but the movie is like saying, like, do, does Spider-Man have to have Uncle and Uncle Ben die in order for him to believe that with great power also must come great responsibility? Because I don't think that needs to be true. Like, maybe people can think that without having that kind of suffering and loss and making us go through the same origin story a million freaking times. And like, maybe we can tell, can tell a different story, but yeah, Spider-Man created by Steve Ditko, but Stanley did write that good line of dialogue. I mean, <laughs> I think, I think something is, is, is dying there, you know, like, I think, I think this film is teasing and playing with what it means to change a story, how one can. And for me, it was that, okay, so if a captain is always going to die, guess what? You can not, you know, maybe you can't change that the captain is going to die, but you can change who the captain is and you can change if there's a captain Mm. at all, right? And so when Gwen's Mm -hmm. dad is no longer the captain, I was just like, oh shit, this is amazing, right? Like you don't have to change all parts of quote fate. You just have Mm -hmm. to change your role in it. You just have to change whether or not you take on this particular identity if what is in the canon and what is fated is that this character will have this particular arc. Well, then just don't be that character. Like you can change that people have the capacity Mm -hmm. to change. And that for me is just over and over again in this film that parents can change, that children can change, that your friends can Mm -hmm. change, how you see yourself can change, your identity can change, what power you think you do or don't have can change. All of these things are possible. And the other thing that happens, you know, side by side with it is that there's such a big character in truth, right? All the parents are like, just don't lie to me. Why would you lie Mm -hmm. to me? Are you lying to me now? Right? And these young people too, all these different spider characters also learning, am I lying to myself? Am I lying to other people? Like what, what is the truth here? And, you know, is, is being truthful with yourself and with others, is that the great responsibility? Is that actually the power? Not necessarily that you Mm. have the ability to, you know, have web come from your hand and that you can swing from building to building. I think this film for me questions whether or not that is the only superpower that these characters are capable of having. I like that. Miles' parents are so great. I really wish that they hadn't decided to keep his dad being a cop, which is completely unnecessary in any way. But I, I love all of his parents' interactions with him and with each other. That That rooftop scene for his dad's birthday party, that's like as a New Yorker, I'm like, that is such a good New York rooftop party. The local Dominican bakery, because I'm sorry, that's a local Dominican bakery that Miles goes into to get the cake made. Because that's where you go to get a cake made. For his dad is like perfect. And the poor woman being like, I'm going to keep writing this long message. Sure, let's try it. But like, the beauty of him going through that staircase, which, you know, like, you you couldn't do that live action. That has to be animated. No. Yeah. That was such a tremendous scene. And then it had such great emotional beats. I love his mom being like about Spider-Woman. Like she looks like she's old enough to vote, you know, which, but yeah, I, I think that there's a lot of really beautiful work done with his parents here. And I just feel like it was unnecessary for his dad to be a cop, which is, you know, from the original comics, but lots not, of things not, about Spider-Man Miles' dad were unnecessary from the original Sure comics. were. I, to the point where other yeah. words, subsequent writers are like, I don't know why he was named that. We're changing it. It's fine. 
Yeah. But it's just called Jeff Davis now, not Jefferson Davis. He was never called yeah. Jefferson Davis. And, and then in in the later Saladin Ahmed run, they just said, oh, yeah, I took your mom's last name. I'm Jeff Morales now. And I'm like, oh, great. That's Hooray. that's a much smarter decision. <laughs> yeah, good job. The good feminist the, ally there. <laughs> the something that like when we were getting into like does does like someone have to die for spider-man to like you know exist one thing that gets to me because they don't really bring it up they bring they bring it up as far as like miles mentions it but like miles had one canon event already like canon event that's not a real thing but like how the movie talks about it (laughs) is his uncle died uncle aaron died in the first movie Mm -hmm. like he had the uncle ben moment of like a, a dead uncle who mentored you and that still isn't enough for the spider society. Like he has to suffer more. Mm. He has to like, and the, I, I think it's such a neat idea of like, is in the name of hitting all of the beats that everyone wants a story to hit, no amount of suffering will be enough unless it is hitting, it is filling that role that people are like demanding it must fill. And having Miles be like, no, I, I'm good. I already lost an uncle. I'm not going to lose my dad. <laughs> this is nonsense. Is just so refreshing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think the animation on the character, like him and Gwen, their facial expressions so are... Good. When Fra- Frank was watching it with me, and he said he thinks this is the best animation he's ever seen. And he's like, I kept reacting to Miles's face like he was a person while knowing that he was a drawing and like he's like i you know and i thought that that was an interesting which is funny because if we watch you know we watch animation all the time i guess i guess i hadn't really thought about it in that way but any thoughts about themes with miles like getting a little older and dating girls and that whole like puberty sub not subtext but storyline with it or any thoughts Mm. I I don't have any, but thought I'd ask. <laughs> I, I, I think it's a little interesting in terms of like, once again, like comparing it to the original comics, because notably Miles was very young when he became Spider-Man. And he was like 12, I think he was like 11 or 12. He was very young and it was a little weird. It was a little like, why is this 12 year old fighting like adult supervillains? This is a little uncomfortable. What but, is this, a Batman comic? <laughs> God. But the, like, having, like, and then they just kind of quietly went, like, mm, yes, this is, we're going to relaunch, and surprise, he's 17 now. Having this one kind of actually dig into it and, like, address, like, you know, yeah, Miles was, like, 14, 15 when he got the powers, and now he's, like, 16, 17, and he's getting older and like just being able to actually see the journey happen rather than having it kind of quickly brushed over is nice Mm. to like actually experience yeah i wonder i don't know that it was needed this like you know love triangle between miles and hobie and gwen and the sort of like who are you really with or who are you really friends with or who are you really you know, in allegiance to, and Gwen just kind of like goes and, and is like kind of neither both. I don't know. Does it matter? And so, yeah, yeah I think I, she I, deflates it. It's yeah, she does. And I just, you know, and there's an assumption, right. When Hobie's like, are those my shoes? That's another moment too, where you see mm-hmm. Gwen evolving. Like we're no longer in the ballet slippers that are green. God, I'm so green, happy. Green jugs, mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. But it's like, there are these little tiny moments where like miles notices the hair. Hobie 
notices the shoes, right? Like they're noticing changes in her that may or may Mm. not have anything to do with them, but they kind of make it about them because it's a reflection of like, you're changing. Mm -hmm. Does that mean you're not into me anymore? But I just don't know that it's necessary. Like it, it doesn't, I just don't, I think they could have pointed things out without it feeling like there were undertones of romance, but I, I don't know. read it the same way. I, I read it as Miles is interested in Gwen romantically. Mm-hmm. Gwen, I think, is interested in Miles romantically a bit. I think that I think that Miles is temporarily jealous of Hobie and Abstentia, but once he meets him, realizes like, oh, that's an adult. Like, I don't read Hobie's interactions with Gwen as being romantic. I Mm -hmm. think that she stole his shoes because he's cool. I think he's like her big brother. And I don't feel like there was any tension between him and Miles. And in fact, I feel like I almost heard Miles upon meeting him like, oh, I'm not jealous. I get this. This is not that. Like, I like he she thinks that he's super cool, but like this isn't this isn't in that category. And so I, I had read that and felt like I was pretty clear on that being my reading to the point where if there was some sort of romantic thing with him in the next movie, I would be like, what the fuck? But I, I just really felt like, I thought, I also thought it was funny for Miles to be momentarily jealous about like some guy yeah. he hasn't met yet. And they'd be like, oh, no, no, I didn't get it. Never mind. You're so cool. I think you're so cool. Also, you're a grown up. So this is not the same thing. I, I, I think it kind of goes back into the, like, like where, like I said, the movie kind of tricks you with Hobie when it introduced, like introducing him with that, like Miles getting jealous and Miles is our protagonist. So like, we kind of like immediately side Mm. with Miles. So like having Miles get jealous, you're like, oh, is this, oh no, is this a thing? Like, are they doing the fairly rote, like introducing like a potential other love interest in the sequel? And then having that be diffused, diffused and like, you know, but Hobie very clearly being like, no, nah, no, they're, they're, I, I'm here for, like, I'm supporting you as much as I'm supporting her. Like, you're both, like, you know, yeah. cool with me. Is, again, like, just another way of, like, the the gradual build they have to, like, realizing when Hobie Brown says, like, you know, I've been cool, this cool the whole time. Like, he genuinely is the coolest, <laughs> like, most competent man in any room he's going to walk into. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I mean, movies do really have a tendency to fall into that kind of forced triangle mm. thing. I mean, maybe that will happen, but I just don't feel like the, the I don't feel like the lot of that has been the die, I don't think like the die has been cast yet that that is necessarily what they were doing I hope they, I don't yeah, know. They, they, I hope these yeah. these movies from what I can see they they do they're not like sitting taking notes being like, oh, well, the fans like this one. So we have to like blah, blah, blah. But they do, they've done a decent job of like listening to criticism and correcting, like, like getting rid of Ben Gwen's ballet shoes. Like everyone hated those from the first movie. Like they didn't need to be there. Spider Gwen is not a ballet dancer. And then in, for another example, like Penny in the first movie was in the comics, she's a very direct Evangelion riff. And it's far more like, tragic and like serious and then they turned her into like a peppy like very stereotypical anime chibi girl with like a cutesy neck and then in this one when she's up when she shows up she's like haunted and like sad and then when her mech shows up it looks like an evangelion robot so like i feel like they are at least aware enough of the fan base that they would be aware that 
doing a love triangle, everyone would hate that. Like the everyone I've the universal reaction I've seen has been people going like, "Thank God they didn't do that." Daniel Kaluuya, who plays Hobie, apparently when he got cast as the character and found out it was a character that already existed in the comics, he said, you know, I bet there's somebody has made a fan mix about him on Spotify. Let me go check it out. Mm -hmm. And said that he's like, and I found, I found right away some fan mixes dedicated to Hobie Brown that I listened to and they were very helpful. I'm like, so dude, <laughs> like, like his first thing he does when he finds out that his character exists, is it not even like reading the comics? It's like, I want to see the fan art that they have made about me because that is where the true soul of this character is coming from, which I thought was such an interesting and specific drive from him, you know, like, to go straight to the fan, especially because he's a musician. I mean, and Daniel mentioned mm -hmm. this, especially because Hobie is a musician. I wanted to see what music people thought of for him. So I went and I looked at the fan playlist on Spotify. Uh, I, I just love that. What a, what a cool actor to, to do that. He's really fabulous in everything he's been in also. So no surprise. I think it's, it's also worth noting to like people who like maybe want to go listen to like a Hobie playlist. Cody Ziegler, the writer of a recent Spider-Punk miniseries, put together one that is a lot better than a lot of the pop... Because turns out when a lot of people hear, like, oh, a punk character, they immediately go to, like, very white, very, like, classic 80s punk. Cody Ziegler yeah. is a black writer and filled his playlist with a lot of, like, small indie, like, modern, like, black and people nice. of color punk bands and I'm like, that is that is the true Hobie Brown mix. Like, that is what he would listen to. Yeah, so yeah. that's absolutely worth tracking down. No, it's true. Like, if Hobie Brown was, it would be embarrassing for Hobie Brown to be a Sex Pistols fan. Like, yeah. let's be honest. I think the animators might think that he is because they don't really get it. But that would be an embarrassing. Obviously, he listens to Bad Brains, but I don't. I don't think he listens to the Sex Pistols, and I'd I'd, I'd love to see the the newer, younger, smaller bands that he might be checking out. Uh, you know, one thing I I saw the movie in a drive-in theater, which is basically how I see everything that I see during this ongoing COVID pandemic. And the one downside of seeing things in a drive-in is I don't really get to hear. Sometimes I feel like I can't really hear the music or soundtrack as well as I would have if I was in a closed theater. Does anybody have any thoughts about the music? in the movie or the soundtrack at all? Hmm. Gwen's theme has entered my, like, I need to, like, get pumped up about something. Like, I need to, like, wake up or something. And also because I'm on TikTok, the little sting, hmm. the, like, went up for, like, Miguel, the da na 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 like, like, weird, like, cyber sting they do is all over TikTok. So it is burned into my brain for the rest of my life, I think at this point but other than that it's just good like it's a good i think the like licensed songs were maybe stronger in the first one because the what's up danger scene is like an all-time perfect scene but the soundtrack ruled like big fan i mean i think the only thing for me mostly because we were just talking about hobie is that you know daniel usually plays characters that are american english speaking so I didn't actually clock him as being the actor who was the voice mm. until after the film. And I was like, who were all those people? And was like, oh, my God, this was like such a powerhouse of like, you know, actors out in the world. And I was like, oh, you got to be you. Like mm -hmm. you got 
you mm. and have your voice. And then, you know, you read interviews where he's like, yeah, I basically from Camden, I'm from the same place Hobie would have been from. Right. Like, and so there's all these moments where for some of the actors, the connection to the characters that they were playing was, was very real. And, you know, with the storyline being about truth and authenticity and, you know, all these different kinds of things, it feels like Hobie's character and Hobie being, you know, the main superhero in the film, like was the one who landed with the most authenticity from character to actor. Love it. That's really cool. I think the the things that are also sort of sticking with me about the film are twofold. One, actually, maybe there's three. I don't think I actually said what I wanted to say earlier when it when we were talking about do certain characters have to die? Do certain canon events have to happen in order in order for the the plot or the arc to still you know, work themselves out. Mm. And I think that things do end up dying, but maybe what ends up dying is what you think is supposed to happen or, you know, exactly how it's supposed to go down is what happens. And so you were saying something about, you know, like why does Miles have to have it doubly hard or have compounded Mm -hmm. like grief? And I think that's a very POC thing, you know, like, Mm. yeah, their uncle died And yeah, you know, their parent, one of their parents happens to be the captain of the police department and in the cannons, the captain dies, right? Like, and I just feel like that that is a a commentary and and a part about like when you are that version of Spider-Man, when you're the POC, you know, like brown Spider-Man, yeah, shit's going to have to hit you harder because it does. It's not going to be exactly the same. And, And is that something that has to happen or can... Can, again, the character that you're supposed to play, the captain, can that actually change? And I'm actually curious to see if the if the sequel will actually have that transition and change where Miles' dad isn't a cop anymore either. Like, how many times do the mm. cops have to, by accident, almost kill their own children? You know, like, and, yes. and does it have to be your own bio child in order for you to see a teen that you hold a gun up to as your child? And mm-hmm. so I think... I think there's a lot in there about that particular character. And I also think that what's also interesting to me is how much Miles, Miles's parents are also like holding up these, these canons, if you will, in the Latinx community and migrant communities about like you're, you have a low grade in Spanish. You have a low grade in the thing that's supposed to be in you and that you should just have. And then she makes these comments about like, I'm Puerto Rican. It's part of the U S right. Like, so there's all these, all these moments of like education and behind the curtain or windows, right? Like into cultural aspects of lies and authenticity and like what life is really like. And let me, let me keep educating you on my culture, but I don't actually know my own culture well enough to get a passing grade in it either. So there's like, there's these things happening and along that line, right? Like the mom lets miles out when she gets this feeling that he has a love interest So there's a little bit still of like some heteronormativity going on in the film as well, where it's like, if, if it wasn't Gwen, what if it was Hobie that Miles was hanging Mm -hmm. out with? What if she thought that like, whatever was going on with Miles and and Hobie was maybe like queer in some sort of like way, would she still have been, would she then have pulled back and been like, I don't, I don't Mm -hmm. like that person that you're hanging out with, you know, but it's a, it's a, it's a white girl presenting character. So like, that's okay. So like, there's just like a bunch of other subtext going on in the film for me for better or worse. Right. But I think that, you know, at the end of the day, it, 
it doesn't matter so much because it isn't the only thing that's in the film, right? Like when you only have one singular thing that is being talked about, whether you agree with it or not, that's all you have to stand on. So you you have this like dichotomy of I liked it or I don't. But the thing with this film is that there are so many things happening at once simultaneously hmm. that you're incredibly like I found myself incredibly engaged and just wanting to talk to like more people about what they saw in the film. Because mm-hmm. I think what you see and what you take away is definitely grounded in who you are and what you're seeing and what you're grappling with in this particular moment, you know, like, so for me, I'm grappling with the idea of like staying alive instead of dying as soon as I thought I would with my own health concerns and being disabled. And so that's what I saw. And that's what I gravitated to the mm. idea of like being different or like grieving and losing and getting second, third, fourth chances to like try and and change your own narrative and change the larger narrative that you're structurally a part of. And so that's what I saw. And I think that the film is so beautifully done in that it has so much for so many people, whether you're a parent, whether you're a youth, whether you're questioning so many different things about what is your arc and canon or canons in your story, according to your family or your lineage or your heritage. And so I feel like mm. there's there's a lot in here. And the last thing I just want to say is, what a, an incredible film that really empowers fans and the mm-hmm. power of fandoms to organize and create their own stories and literally change mm-hmm. then the story that gets reflected back to them. And I feel like that for me is the most powerful part of this film that I just want to uplift and bring up over and over again. If you're a fan of any film, of any story, of any narrative, change that shit, do it in such mass mm. and, and big, you know, like, you know, ways that it is noticed and what you're changing in the story is ultimately what gets incorporated to, you know, the story that that's being reflected back to you. You hit on something just now, Felicia, that's interesting. I'm friends with someone who is a pretty high level person and Sony's marketing team. And when the movie was soon to come. She was talking about how they were doing this whole campaign, encouraging fans to create their spider Sona, where mm-hmm. you could like upload your photo to some API, API thing. I, I actually didn't do it, but like, and like come and come up with like, I, I don't know if you did this Zoe or if you did this Felicia, but like, it was like a, like, but yeah, part of the marketing campaign was like straight up making up a spider a spider sona character for yourself which i thought was like such a clear line between like yes like you are it's just very smart marketing and obviously like nobody's doing this because they're benevolent but i think it's a cool way to be like yes you can be in this story and to recognize that that is what fans have always been doing with spider-man like i know so many people who are of my generation and older especially older who when they were kids on the playground, if they were black or brown, Spider-Man was the only superhero they could be because Spider-Man had a full covered suit. So Spider-Man could potentially be black or brown. And like fans have already been putting themselves in as Spider-Man forever. And to just have that kind of officially be part of the marketing campaign that the that the production company, not production company, that the that Sony like knows is going like Sony is like asking folks to do, I think is really interesting. It's so bringing back to like when we talked about Sun Spider earlier, it, it it kind of brings it full circle because the Spider Sona thing first happened with Into the Spider Verse, 
artists all over Twitter and Tumblr like were like, "Ooh, I'm gonna make my Spider Sona" because it was so like you know the multiverse and they they you could be like, "Oh, I'm a Spider Man from this Earth," and Sun Spider was an artist doing that. They made their Spider Sona and it was Sun Spider. And then Marvel went, Hey, this is such a good design. Like, you know, like that. I forget if they did a contest or just directly reached out to bring it into the comics. And now here we are, you know, what, five years later? And Sun Spider is in the film and has a spoken dialogue and is like, I know. So, like, that's a direct example of fan crafting their own stories being so powerful that it is brought into the film itself and changed. And people are doing spider sonas again. Like now I have, I have a friend who's doing one for me. Cause I was like, I've been wanting one of these for five years. I'm just going to pay a friend artist and finally get one because I can't do it myself. And Yay for paying artists. Yeah, uh, always. Unlike Marvel's new credit sequence for oh, the Superman movie. <laughs> God, that what a mess. But yeah, I I think the way that these movies specifically, because like you don't see the like wave of spider sonas or fan art or like just like excitement. You do see them for other movies, like you know, sure, like of an Avengers movie is gonna have a bunch, but like the the raw outpouring of like creativity and love and like ex- like pure energy that fans have for the for the Spider-Verse movies i think really speaks to just how well they speak they speak to fans as like you should tell your story because everyone's story is worth telling even if it like isn't the normal one because like that's that was the message of the first one like you know Miles Morales wasn't like mm-hmm. a normal Spider-Man and now here we are where there's 200 different spider people and they each have their own story and I'm really excited to see how the third one plays with it cuz I feel like they've covered two very firm directions on it and now they've got the whole angle with evil miles who i don't want to call evil i did i did like the joke of calling him in like it's kilometers immoralis because he's bizarro miles <laughs> but but like i i'm the way that these interface and like just directly speak to people is so unlike any other like movie let alone like you know superhero movie that i can remember in recent memory and it's just, I, I, I cannot, like, I, I will watch these movies a hundred times. I've seen Into the Spider-Verse probably like 20 times but since it came out. It, it's like a comfort movie for me. I'm curious, oh, wow. Zoe, Zoe, do you, does this track for you? Like, in the first Spider-Man film, there was so much about, like, Miles as Miles, and then mm-hmm. Miles as Spider-Man, mask on all the time. And the mm. and the narrative over and over again, anyone can wear the mask, anyone can wear the mask. Yeah. In this one, we see more often than not the characters with the Spider-Man clothing on, but not the mask. Or the mask halfway up, right? You have mm. this moment where it's less about them wearing the mask and more about them not wearing the mask, but still being Spider-Man. And I think that that is interesting to me that there are these moments throughout this film where people are like, what's that underneath your shirt? What's that over here? What's that over there? Like trying to uncover 
are you who you say you like what 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 are you what are you lying about what are you not telling me and in the first one it, there was such a stark line between like now i am and now i'm not and no one can know and now it's all about everyone can know and i'm actually going to be maybe part spider-man when i'm not supposed to be and I'm going to be part miles when I'm not supposed to be. You see what I'm saying? Like, I'm just wondering, yeah. like, where, mm. what's the queering of this particular second sequel? I think where the film directly, like, kind of calls attention to it is the, the Gwen scene. Because if you, it, like, if you, if you buy the take that it is a trans metaphor, I, I think having her take off her mask and have her be, like, literally, like, unmasking in front of her dad and being raw and honest and having him accept her. And then I don't think she might have it on when she's like climbing into his room, but I don't think Gwen like wears her mask for the rest of the movie after that point. Cause like during the final, right. like mm. the band is with each other, like at the end, mm-hmm. they're all unmasked. I well, except mm-hmm. for like Spider-Man noir isn't because he never takes off his mask. As far as I'm concerned, he that is him unmasked because he's always like that. Mm-hmm. Every, everyone else is like, doesn't have their mask on. And I think the, like the queering of it is like the idea that like you can have those, you can have distinct parts of yourself if you want to, like you can have the hard line of I have the mask. I'm Spider-Man. I take off the mask. I'm not Spider-Man, but these, and especially since they're the younger generation, mm-hmm are choosing to be like, no, this is all me. All all of this is me all the time. Mask on, mask off, I'm me. And I I, I think it's a very interesting angle to take that I'm sure they're going to have their mask on plenty of times in the third one. But especially with like, with where Miles ends up, like it's literally two unmasked versions of Miles looking different than each other, like looking the same but different right at each other. And I mm-hmm. I want to see where it goes. Yeah, the mask becomes their hair. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting because the other Miles has long hair. Yeah, right? He's so got you've the got this, braids. Yeah, you've got this like gender play going on so many mm-hmm. times throughout the film. It's also just a brief thing because you mentioned the Gwen hair moment. I uh, obviously not going to speak for every trans lady out there, but I and a few people I know are very particular about our hair. Like it is important to our gender expression and, you know, fighting dysphoria. There's a moment in the first movie that is recontextualized for me where when Miles gets his hand stuck to her hair and pulls it out. And like, she has to do the shave and she's not happy about it. Like she's very, like Mm. having it recontextualized of like, oh, he just fucked up her gender presentation. He just like, he just like, like, uh, do I know Gwen is trans? No, but like, I think there are all these little things that like their identity is important to them in their own special ways and that one kind of reading it back now is like, oh, I can I can see how this plays in. Yeah. Wow. Definitely. There's so much about there's so much between Gwen and her dad about like what you what you see when you're still yep. looking at the same person, right? Mm-hmm. Like he he knows that he vilifies spider, spider girl, spider woman. And then when she lifts up her mask and he's like, Oh, that's my child. 
doesn't matter. All I see is still Spider Woman and I don't mm-hmm. like her. And then she goes home and she's like, oh, right, my dad, I don't like him. He's the cop. He's the captain. He's that guy. And then he's like, I'm not a cop anymore. And she's like, oh, you're just my dad, right? Like, you're my dad. Like, so there's so much about like identity, even mm-hmm. though they're the exact same people. Nothing about them has changed, right? Like, they're still the same people to their core. But when they take on the identity of, I now call myself this, or the world calls me mm-hmm. this, or I have this job and it calls me this, and it comes with this name. Like, it's, it's very... There's just so much going on. And I wonder, you know, like I'm not a parent, but I do parent, right? Mm -hmm. There's the noun versus the verb. I parent, but I'm not a parent. And I wonder what parents out there in the world are grappling with as they see this film about, you know, like Mm -hmm. children growing up and children becoming themselves and finding themselves. And what does it mean to grapple with, quote, being lied to versus like, why is anybody lying to me at all? Like, what what am I not providing in my home or for my child that they feel Mm -hmm. that they have to? Yeah, that feels so much like the conversation we're having where, which we've been having my whole fucking life as if it hasn't already been had, where some people are insist, where anti-queer people are insisting that parents have the right to know everything about their kids' identity and forcing schools to out kids to their parents versus recognizing that kids are not their parents' property. And we always bring it back to be like, yeah, if you're a safe person, your kids will tell you, which is not even a hundred percent always true. I like, you know, I'm a fucking adult and my parents are like pro queer rights, but I've definitely have all kinds of gender conversations that I don't want to feel like I want to have with them or in front of them, you know, but like, I don't know, but just the generally speaking, I think that that conversation shows up in here as well. You know, they have the entitlement that they get to know everything. I mean, it's literally, it's literally a line right in the film. I'm, I'm looking at some of my notes from being that asshole watching the movie, pulling out their phone and writing <laughs> notes, which is I there's a line too. that says, can you just not be a cop for a second and just be my dad for a minute? Mm. You know, and I think that so I think that there's there's a lot in there about like, can you just be this and not be that just so that I can just so that I can be real. And that that's what's behind, you know, some of the, the quote, dishonesty or just holding things back. Like, you're not who you say you are. Be, be who you actually say you are. Then maybe I, I can be who, who I can be. I, I think it's also the, I think the specific moment that George Stacy stops being a cop is very important because he mm-hmm. doesn't quit beforehand. He doesn't, like, when, when they start having that conversation, he is still a cop because he says like during her speech he goes i'm not a captain anymore and she goes since when and he goes about halfway through your speech and i think the the act of having him listen to his child and actually internalize what she's saying for the first time like it would be one thing if hobie came in and like magically like fixed him and said hey stop being a cop which is very funny, but like not what happens. It's him actually stopping and listening to what his daughter needs and what his daughter wants and how she's trying to meet him in the middle with their relationship. 
and responding to that with like what you need like what you need from me is a sacrifice i have to make as a parent but i am going to make that sacrifice because you are my child and that is worth it and that like having him ha- having it be in the moment be something in a response to her rather than like something he pre-planned thought out is i think such a interesting choice to make in regards to like both their relationship and also like Gwen's whole, like, you know, when, when you get into the, the like trans of it all, like there's, you know, the people say like, Oh yeah. People who know a trans person are like vastly less likely to be like, you know, at least aggressively transphobic, ha- like having him actually sit down and talk to his daughter um, and having that be the moment where he's like, oh, okay, cool. I'm not a cop anymore. I quit. Like you are, you are worth more than that to me. And is I, th- I think pretty potent. And I hope, I hope any parents that maybe need to hear that message do. Yeah. Yeah. To, f- to finish up, I want to talk a little bit about the spot, the new antagonist introduced in this movie. You know, at, at first, you know, like they introduced a story like, oh, he was a scientist. He got caught up in the explosion. And like, look, Spider-Man of all different kinds end up having a lot of science supervillains, mm-hmm. a lot of scientist collateral damage. So I hadn't really thought too much past that at that point, other than like, holy crap, this character gets to break physics and be, you know, like he's a spot is an animated character who could only exist in comics or animation, although really especially in animation because mm-hmm. of how he is able to move through space. Like there's no live action way to convey like how this is a drawing come to life. But it was only when he was like, it was supposed to be me. That I was like, Oh, that is, this is that. Cause you know, Peter Parker was a science kid. Like this is, he was a lab assistant, you know, like this is that world's Spider-Man yelling that he was entitled to have um, spider mantle and gone full villain. Yeah. I, I like, I like, I, I think that is an intended read as far as like, he's like a, you know, an entitled white guy who wants to have the superpowers, but miles Peter Parker was in the first one. He was the, he was voiced by Chris right. Pine. He was the blonde guy. I just wanted to make sure we're, we're right. speaking metaphorically, not literally. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah okay. Yeah. Cool. I, I was, I was just like, cool. Cause metaphorically yes literally i want to make like that dude is dead as hell (laughs) yes he is he he views himself as being Mm -hmm. wronged and that entitlement making him the supervillain but we get this the the edition sportsman's performance is really good and we get this great just rule-breaking animated sequence with him in that initial fight with the spot that i just found and you know what? I also probably took him to be yet another Spider-Man science villain because mm-hmm. he calls him, you're the villain of the week. And so my brain is like, okay, yeah, this is the lizard. You know, this is Electro. This is Paste Pot Pete. I mean, there's just really a lot of random scientist spider villains with weird gimmicks. Spot is different because, you know, the the ba- some of the backstory on the spot in terms of the creation is... You know, I think in many ways, the this particular Spider-Man is probably the best one for, you know, the spot because it's all about animation. It's really an homage to animation and all the mm-hmm. different ways in which you can mm-hmm. really incorporate all these different versions of it. 
And the spot apparently really comes from like Warner Brothers with like, you know, Elmer Fudd and Bugs Bunny and like Bugs Bunny would move his rabbit hole so mm-hmm. that people would get stuck in different ways. Right. And, mm. and not find him. So it was a way to like avert like Bugs Bunny, if you will, superpower was that we all believed that that black spot was the rabbit hole, but really it's into multiple dimensions and spaces and time. And that apparently that's where, you know, Dr. Jonathan on gets their name from that eventually you could say that's Johnny on the spot. So I, there's a whole, there's a oh. whole thing about that character being very much so an animation homage character. And I think that, you know, it allows it allows the the villain to be just like a really, really smart, you know, like trickster who can just like hide in plain sight and hide in multiple areas at once and be like divided as a person. My hands over here, my arms over there, my head's over here. And somehow we're all in the same place and in multiple places all at once. So it's not only about the multiverse, but also about identity and querying where you are and who you are at what place and how you can avoid and just sort of just all the different ways in which so many people mostly in marginalized communities have to code switch all the time right is code switching the spot like speaking spanish in this space and speaking english over here and over there speaking spanglish and like all the different ways in which gender language identity culture time comes out in all these different ways. I don't think we could have had any other quote villain than the spot for this particular film. Awesome. So Felicia, where can our listeners keep up with your amazing self online and future products? In addition, of course, to the fact they should go back and listen to us talk about the original movie. And also they should listen to us talk about Watchmen. And also they should listen to us talk about Black Panther, the recent Black Panther. And you've been on my show a lot and I'm really grateful because you're an amazing guest. So thank you. But other than those episodes, where should folks be keeping up with your work? Well, I actually do a lot of art right now dealing with spots and circles and stampings of pill bottles as my art making right now is very much so grounded in medicinal waste and telling a story about access to medicine and the costs and ramifications of having or not having that kind of access. So that all can be seen and more rabbit holes or spots and dimensions can be traveled through at FeliciaPerez.com. Love it. And Zoe, obviously, folks will be buying Blade Maidens when it's in their store. But how yep. they can how can they keep up with your work in the meantime? Well, you can read Blade Maidens on our website. It's just blademaidens.com. But you can also follow me on for as long as I'm there, given the state of things. I'm at Blankzilla <laughs> on Twitter, B-L-A-N-K, Zilla like Godzilla. I'm also at Zoe with a sword on Blue Sky, if you've gotten into there. Otherwise, just keep an eye out. I've got other projects in the works. I signed a contract for one today, so so you'll see more comics written by me, and it will be neat. Nice. Oh, I love to hear it. I'm really excited to see what, what else comes next. As for me... I am still on Twitter a little bit too much, but less than I was E L A N A underscore Brooklyn. I am on blue sky with my last name L E V I N. And uh, definitely will we do in fact have additional star Trek stuff coming up for you covering strange new worlds and more from the deep space nine podcast. 
As I've mentioned, there is also a couple indie comics and a popular comic creator who will be joining us soon. Can't wait to share that with you guys when I'm announcing it. And as we like to say, keep it geeky.